0: It's a great personal pleasure uh, to welcome Philip Nanton to the seminar. Uh, Philip is an honorary research associate at uh, the University of Birmingham. But more importantly, he uh, has chosen, uh, has the good fortune to any of birds to live in Barbados. Uh, and I've had the good fortune to visit him several times there. So uh, it's a great pleasure to have you uh, to the seminar. And his recent publications include Island Voices from uh, St. Christopher and the Barracudas, and most recently, along the theme that he's talking about this evening, Frontiers of the Caribbean. Here is the book, Frontiers of, of the Caribbean, and his, the title of his paper this evening is The Caribbean Frontier, Learning from the Small Islands, St. Vincent and the Grenadines. And before I pass it over, let me just remind you that uh, Philip will uh, give his presentation, but there'll be plenty of time for questions, so I hope you will have some, and then we will adjourn for some drinks. I hope you'll stay, stay and join us for a drink. Sure. Okay,
1: thanks, Gad. Uh, thank you all for <coughs> inviting me to come and, and talk this, uh, this, this afternoon, evening. Uh, I was going to wave the book around and do the advert first, but <laughs> as Gad has done it for me, we'll dispense with that and move straight into, into my what I have to say. Uh, uh, One of the questions that uh, I've been concerned with is the question can dependent countries each comprising scattered islands and with populations somewhat over a hundred thousand or a little above that, do they have anything to contribute in this 21st century globalized world? Also what analytically can these rocks offer the wider world beyond some anti-colonial rhetoric perhaps gratitude for international, occasional international handouts following the last natural disaster, uh, or tax avoidance headaches for the OECD, and of course as a holiday destination, which people go to quickly and then re- return from. So to try and answer that question, what I want to argue is that if you look a little more closely at the Eastern Caribbean, and ultimately I would argue the entire region, you will discover features of what I want to call frontier societies. That is, is societies that are caught in a balance between an imposed civilizing order and an untamed wild that is forever encroaching. Both elements of the civilized and the wild, I would argue, are also in constant flux. Frontier traits are to be found as much in the way that these societies are organized and run, as they are to be found in the traits or styles of Caribbean individuals. The frontier, I will argue, is a concept that's worth reviving and bringing up to date because it offers a new way of understanding Caribbean society and individuals. So to argue my corner, I will first briefly outline some problems and limitations at the theoretical and practical levels with existing ways of reading our region. I will then go on to offer what I call a frontier analysis, that overcomes some of these limitations and provides an alternative approach to understanding the region. At the theoretical level, knowledge production in the Caribbean presents a kind of conundrum. We have relied heavily for some time on European thinkers who, it must be admitted, have been at the heart of social theory. Marx, Weber, Durkheim, as well as those who are more recent, including Foucault, Habermas, Giddens, and Derrida. And, of course, they provide a foundation for contemporary analysis in the framing of their scholarship. Their work is rich and important, but it is not without its problems for the Caribbean. As some commentators have observed, modern European social theory does not have concerns central to the Caribbean situation. In particular, discussions of colonialism, post-colonialism, color, race and racism, identity politics, and discrimination. (laughs) Now, these concerns, in turn, raise questions of social identity, voluntary and forced migration, that fall outside the ambit of these European thinkers. In response to these realities, and in his discussion of what he calls the présence européenne, Stuart Hall has observed, and I quote, For many of us in the region, this presence is a matter not of too little, but of too much. The important question, he suggests, is how to recognize its irreversible influence while resisting its imperializing eye. Hall is referring here, it seems to me, to the fundamental issue of epistemic entrapment and dependence in which the region is held. At the same time, Caribbean theorists have made a plea for recognition of our our regional specificity and distinctiveness. I'm thinking here, for example, of Las Casas' identification of our, our particular way of dancing Benita Rojo's observation of the Caribbean syncopated way of walking, Lloyd Best's discussion of the specificity of Caribbean plantation society and culture, Camel Braffitt's discussion of the Caribbean as Creole society par excellence, Colin Wilson's attention to reputation and respectability as key influences and features of our social behavior. Now these eminent thinkers have paid attention to identifiable and distinctive traits that run through the region's culture. All of this specificity has been reinforced, of course, by over 50 or more years of day-to-day politics that emphasize the uniqueness of each island's nationalism. However, Edward Said, in his Culture and Imperialism, has argued for what he calls a rewriting of connected histories. Said suggests that post-colonial criticism shows the need to take into account what he calls overlapping territories and intertwined histories, he notes, and I quote, the problem is to keep in mind two ideas that are in many ways antithetical. The fact of the imperial divide on one hand and the notion of shared experiences on the other. Maybe he was thinking here like the fact that, you know, on the one hand you had the...
0: <coughs>
1: or in, in such Caribbean colonial hierarchies, you have a situation where uh, people would actually go and fight together on the same side or would be educated in the same schools. Uh... uh so he suggests that the best postcolonial writing needs this reasoning, but more importantly does not depend on an easy, repeatable methodology, but on a perspective derived from experience. In other words, if one has, he says, a personal stake. The frontier analysis that I want to offer comes close to this perspective, one that recognizes some common ground. Its concern simultaneously is to look outward and dialogue with other societies that have frontier issues. The concept is interdisciplinary, I think it's applicable across the conventional boundaries of sociology, literature, cultural studies and history. I would draw on both micro-narrative of the frontier, in other words individual stories, as well as features of the frontier at the collective level. Located also as we are in the Caribbean in the Americas, frontier analysis draws on and extends a form of analysis, of course it emanates from that hemisphere. So I will apply the concept to St. Vincent and the Grenadines, which seems slightly crazy, but, but why? First, because islands like St. Vincent and others in the Eastern Caribbean are relatively neglected in terms of research compared with Jamaica, Trinidad and Tobago, and Barbados. And I, to bear this out, when I was a graduate student about 100 years ago, I turned up to carry out my research in St. Vincent, and I was told that really there was nothing here to study, you are wasting your time. <laughs> So, those of you who have done studies in small islands will probably have heard that kind of cry as well. And also, another fact with St Vincent is, of course, if it gets any press coverage, it's usually pretty bad. I'm thinking here, those who know their Derek Walcott poetry will remember the ignorant and unliterary Vincentian cook in The schooner of Flight, who is knifed for the word Walcott uses, fucking with Shabin's poetry. And the country's recent bad press in gender relations Actually extends beyond the alleged peccadillos of the prime minister, and more recently his son, and the society actually has registered one of the highest rates of violence against women per hundred thousand population. But what I want to argue is that actually there are other things worth saying about the society apart from those. <clears throat> so to start off with, then, what is frontier analysis? Conventional frontier analysis defines the frontier as I quote a territory or zone of interpenetration between two previously distinct societies. The frontier opens when representatives of the intrusive group arrives and closes when a single political authority has established hegemony over the area. Caribbean historians appear to agree with this perspective and have mostly consigned frontier analysis to the past. The frontier period in the Caribbean, according to Gordon Lewis, disappeared by the late 18th century overwhelmed by repressive and authoritarian colonial slave society. For Lewis, Frederick Jackson Turner's attention to opening up of opportunity, American distinctiveness, and the scope of self-management that the frontier offered could not apply in the Caribbean, which experienced for centuries a functioning industrialized slave society, albeit one based on agricultural production. But I'm suggesting far from disappearing, the frontier remains very much present, if an under-recognized element of Caribbean island culture. So I define the frontier as a relationship between civilization and wilderness, both in quotes. I understand civilization to refer to societal order and organization that has some element of ideological imposition, for example, by government and artifice. The process of modernity arising initially out of colonization is the beginning of what some may identify as civilizing practices that prioritize development. From the perspective of those who now hold power, who now mobilize the label of civilization, or who are sufficiently dazzled by that power, the notion represents to them the best model of the present and the future. Ideologically, it's a model that any so-called reasonable human being would embrace and applaud. Wilderness, on the other hand, is often forgotten or ignored when the discussion concerns civilization. But I want to argue that it is closely linked with civilization. I associate wilderness with raw nature, the absence of imposed order, and a threat to that order. It is both a physical location as well as a state of mind. Wilderness represents the untamable that always encroaches. It challenges existing notions of order and will take a variety of forms. The relationship between wilderness and civilization, I'm suggesting, is ever-present and continually shifting. Social activities that once might be seen as wild or out of control can be and are gradually brought under control, only for other forms of the wild to break out elsewhere. The frontier, then, may be read as a process that is incomplete, and this incompleteness applies to both sides of the Caribbean frontier, the wild and the civilized. And this complexity constitutes a frontier process in which each element is continually being made while challenging the other. But where can we find examples of the modern frontier? In the United States, of course, the iconic talisman of the frontier was the cowboy, the male loner who knew how to look after himself on the wide range. I argue that modern frontier traits in the Caribbean are located in the restless and adventurous coastal wanderings of the Caribbean fisherman, sailor or seaport smuggler. They can be found in the island wandering woodcutter, those who squat on government land, the urban dame schoolteacher, or more recently, the innovative medical doctor and the mountainside gandra grower. <clears throat> so sim- but simultaneously, the frontier has historically been and remains very much a part of global production. For example, modern globalization has shaped the development of various types of island tourism, including a search for so-called paradise wilderness, a uh, wilderness of course which was once fared and now we, we think of it as needing to be protected. Tourism development ranges from yachting to the discovery and development of discrete private island enclaves, and globalized aspects of the frontier I'm suggesting will also include the development of the Caribbean's financial sector, as well as patterns of Caribbean migration. Now, all of these developments, I connect to notions of the civilized and the wild. But I want to just look at the building blocks of the modern frontier in the region. Uh, These include, I would suggest, shifting state boundaries, weak state regulation, strong privatization, and social withdrawal. The Caribbean has long been a region of shifting boundaries. St. Lucia was regularly traded between Britain and France in the early colonial period. In 1885, Barbados was separated from the British Windward Islands to be administered separately. In 1891, there were riots in St. Vincent when it was rumored that the legislative councils of St. Lucia, St. Vincent and Grenada were to be merged. After a brief flirtation with the federal structure in the 1950s, Island-based political independence followed in various amalgamations. So you have Trinidad and Tobago, Antigua and Barbuda, St. Kitts and Nevis, uh, St. Vincent and the Grenadines. And many of these arrangements are based on uneasy alliances. Uh, Nevis is regularly in dispute with St. Kitts. uh, The most recent one is since the hurricane that hit Barbuda, Barbuda and Antigua are at loggerheads in terms of all sorts of key issues to do with land ownership at the moment. So what I'm saying then, also I live in a region where the boundary between the authoritative appearance of order and good governance disguises dystopic elements of frontier violence and hinterland. As I was suggesting earlier, rape and sexual assault of women is high. St. Vincent is an illustrative case. In 2011, rape and sexual assault on women in that state reached 389 per 100,000, compared to a global average of 15 per 100,000. The murder rates in Jamaica, Trinidad, and tiny St. Kitts are among the 10 highest in the world per head of population. And in each capital city of the region can be found direct defiance of the state in urban garrison communities of varying sizes. In Jamaica, the Dudas case, when uh, he was uh, his arrest was, was requested, and Jama- the Jamaican police had to go and hunt him. This this led to a massive battle in Kingston, as um, because of course it, in the area that he, he controlled, um, people were going anxious to protect him. Another kind of factor in terms of uh, in terms of. Uh, the frontier, is that, the building blocks, is it's important to note also that Pentecostalism is the fastest rising Christian belief system in the region. But the ideological basis on which the world the Pentecostalism is constituted leads very much to the avoidance of involvement with the state. The focus of attention is to cater for members' demands internally while viewing the secular state and its politics as peripheral. This worldview is sustained and encouraged by the church having its ent- own entire welfare system, which are linked very much to the metropolitan world, uh, where the church headquarters are located, and it's possible to go through um, certainly secondary and certainly tertiary education to, it, to, to, it, uh, to universities where uh, by, by staying within within the church, by moving, you know, from, if one moves from the Caribbean to, to metropolitan centers. But I want to be clear, I'm not claiming that modern Caribbean states are passive in public policy, in social welfare provision, in public sector education, and health and national insurance. Many Commonwealth Caribbean states have achieved middle ranking in the UNDP human development reports. By 2000, the Bahamas <coughs> and Barbados were leading the range of medium-range medium countries. Welfare ideologies promoting the legitimacy of the state – are, however, overshadowed, I'm suggesting, by shifting boundaries, violence, the fear of violence, and social withdrawal, as well as privatized institutions that center on the individual. All of these structural processes encourage frontier-type situations in the region. In this situation, the gap between state exhortation and concrete action widens. And some paths to earning a living gain a liminal status, where the line between civilized order and what are in effect various areas of the wild, disordered behaviour, various kinds of piracy, if you like, constantly creates a frontier that has to be negotiated. In this situation, institutions are characterised by weak, so-called civilised regulation, and so guile and innovation become the watchwords for individuals who want to find their way through and get through in living in this society. Let me give you an example, a collective example. The offshore services sector has become second to tourism in its importance to modern Caribbean economies. In 2011, this sector accounted for 17% of regional GDP. In some countries, its value is closer to 25% of GDP. The frontier element in such services derives from the constant flux and sometimes the absence of regulatory processes. In the offshore trust market, for example, I looked at St. Vincent's Law, which offers non-recognition over foreign judgments for international trusts which are formed in that country. The pitch, and you can look at this online if you like, the pitch to international investors who create a St. Vincent Trust is for protection from, I quote, greedy spouses and inconsiderate creditors. In 2015, a review of the sector in the Anglophone Caribbean drew specific attention to the region's inability to attract dedicated regulators. The rapid growth of the sector so frightened international agencies they responded by imposing ever-changing demands on Caribbean jurisdictions to ward off international clients. That the ratings shift between being black, which is like the least regulated, through to grey uh, uh, and various shades to white. Uh, these are listings by the International OECD. Uh, let me draw your attention to one quite alarming moment which took place in 2009. You may remember a person by the name of Alan Sanford. He had a bank in Antigua, and that bank collapsed. The event was a financial disaster for many of his international depositors, for his 28,000 investors, as well as many local Antiguans. Uh, The economy lost about $434 million, which was a little over 10% of its GDP when the bank went under. Stanford employed 2,400 Antigans directly and another 1,500 indirectly. He was convicted for $7 billion of international fraud and was sentenced in 2012 to 110 years in jail.
0: Uh,
1: so, <clears throat> in fact, the island was almost bought by him. He ran an, he ran an airline across the region. Uh, you remember he started 2020 Crickets and was very much involved in that at a certain period of time. Uh, And when I was looking at this situation, I came across uh, an interesting quote by Jamaica Kincaid, who captures the frontier sense of the local feeling about uh, when his bank collapsed. She observed in the New Yorker magazine, in Antigua there's always a man, a person who comes in from the rest of the world, a pirate. Piracy is very close to Antiguan history. They have been coming and hiding money and stealing for hundreds of years. The man comes to Antigua and corrupts the place and everyone's happy because they're making money. The, play, the ones who aren't benefiting from it, like me, are in the opposition. <coughs> so that was uh, Kincaid's view on, on the situation in Antigua. But let me turn more specifically uh, beyond those building blocks to illustrate the operation of the frontier in the context of specifically St. Vincent. Uh, <coughs> Historical indicators of St. Vincent's Frontier features I would contend are conflict over territory, colonial acquisition, outpost status, and distance from any metropolitan centre. Every natural feature of Kingstown once focused on its strategic and defensive role, with a fort and gun batteries facing both seaward and inland. The white settlers who came from England, Scotland and Ireland were essentially sojourners whose primary interests were their plantations, money-making, and eventually an easeful retirement and death, if possible, back in Britain. With little regard for urban areas, these were often dilapidated. When the Garifuna, the local carib population, put up a last-ditch defense against colonial takeover of these islands, this is in the um, late 18th century, the port of Kingstown became a colonial outstation where, metaphorically, settlers wagons could be circled for protection. So whenever there was a, an attack, most of the, the colonial population would head towards the, the main town. As to its outpost status, in the late 19th century, the British government exiled King Jajar of Apogo to St. Vincent precisely because they saw it as one of the most out-of-the-way locations they could send him. Because remember, he created a lot of trouble in terms of the palm oil uh, in West Africa, and he was a An excellent business middleman, and he was too good at his job between the growers inland and the British who were trading uh, on the coast. (coughs) Anyway, Uh, so, but also violence and unrest, of course, is relatively commonplace in St. Vincent, with major riots taking place regularly. Between 1838 and 1935, there were some eight major riots in Kingstown alone. But that's just a very, very quick snapshot of kind of the historical background to the frontier in in the island. I want to bring it up to date and talk about the modern frontier in the St. Vincent Grenadines. So to the south of St. Vincent mainland, you have these small islands, the Grenadines, which stretch over some 60.4 kilometers. Um, About two-thirds of these islets belong to St. Vincent and the rest to Grenada. So they include Bequay, Musty, Canoan, Myro, Palm Island, Petty St. Vincent, and Union Island. The question then is, what frontier issues might a small sovereign state with a porous and variegated boundary experience? Until the late 20th century, the key characteristic of these tiny outposts was neglect and degradation. Um, <clears throat> it took the form usually of a lack of basic amenities as a result of mainland disinterest from various administrations, both colonial and post-colonial. This indifference has dramatically changed, and the reason for this change is the lure of the exotic wild for the wealthy yachting tourist or foreign homeowner. Bekwe, some of you may know, has a reputation for a destination for international yachting enthusiasts. Mustique. When people talk about Mustique, they have no notion that it has anything to do with St. Vincent. Mustique almost exists as a bubble in its own world sometimes. But Mustique was acquired on a long lease of 45,000 pounds by uh, the late Colin Tennant. By 1993, the Mustique company he set up had built 75 foreign exclusive homes and another 25 development lots. It's an interesting island because, of course, his clever ploy was to give a house to Princess Margaret, as you may well know. And in doing that, it, it showed the kind of clientele he was interested in, in linking with. Um, <clears throat> and it's also interesting in, 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 in various ways in how the the wild, as it were, was managed. In 1975, another island, Canawan, was leased to the Swiss-Italian developer, a man by the name of Antonio Saladino, he, who um, basically heads the, the Kanawan Resorts development. Now, my point is that the modern frontier appeal that these little atolls hold is their remoteness. Fed by warm breeze, sunshine, and substantial capital expenditure for, for the size of the place, these features turn frontier remoteness into frontier exclusivity and frontier exoticism. So in a period of about 30 years, Uh, The the shift then has been from centuries of almost subsistence living to serving international tourism. Uh, From the company's point of view, the rate of progress is hampered by low standards of education and an economy based on farming and fishing. And of course, the islanders do appreciate the employment and the company is willing to support individuals, sometimes in difficult circumstances. So it's not that they're just uh, completely avaricious in that sense. Um, older islands do see the tangible changes to their, to their living conditions, more regular health care, they usually build you know, a school, uh, a police station, those kinds of things. Um, but of course the pro- process of change is not problem-free. You have pre- periodic protests to do with islanders feeling excluded from what many regard as their birthright, uh, and then this issue can spill over into protests. An interesting letter to a local newspaper summed up the underlying local feeling and it, during one dispute. And the, dis- one, the dispute arose because, um, and this is, I'm talking about Kanawan Island, uh, what happened was that the tourist dev- developer decided it was a great, there was, the church was on this island, it was a great place to use the church for international weddings. So international weddings is a big deal in small islands and people come in for, the, for these weddings. Now, what they, did, what they didn't realize, though, is that they had to so-called improve what was a, a, a graveyard that look, where local people were buried for, for many, many years, and, of course, in disrupting the graveyard, they upset the whole set of the local population. So um, <coughs> this is just one example, and a letter to the local newspaper sums up another kind of feeling in Kanawan, and I quote from this letter, The real truth is that the European elite in Kanawan have no love for black people have no appreciation of the beauty of Afro-Caribbean culture, no respect for Vincentian traditions and individuals. The real truth is that management doesn't want to see black bodies at the beach with white bodies lounging carelessly nearby. Saladino, Antonio Saladino, the owner, did not come to Canaan because he loved the people, but because he loved the property. So I am suggesting then that the Grenadine Islands provide the opportunity for private developers to exploit the notion of the exotic frontier. The developers' substantial funds give them freedom to construct for their clients romantic and exotic notions that promote the idea that they exist in their own world. Their investments enable their clients to buy for a limited time a privileged, somewhat misleading closeness to nature. And rather than simply being a boundary here, the frontier in the Grenadines has changed and thrived to become a relationship with a remnant of the wild nature. Let me give you another kind of example of the frontier, which is uh, through a religious community called the Spiritual Baptists. Now, Spiritual Baptism started in St. Vincent. Um, it was one of its few claims to fame,
0: uh,
1: and spread to Tobago, Trinidad, Grenada, among other islands. From the mid-19th century, a religious offshoot of the Methodist Church was known to my great delight as the Wilderness People. Uh, they became established in parts of in the St. Vincent countryside, so they broke off from the Methodists. And the spiritual or Baptists, as they became known, were officially banned from 1912 to 1965. The Methodist leadership in the island considered them to be out of control. Their uncontrollable uncontrollable behavior was indulgence in chants, speaking in tongues, induced by long periods of abstinence and, and dancing. By holding services in the open air, the wilderness people combined these unacceptable rituals with the physicality of nature and the wild. Thus they put themselves beyond easy reach of those in authority. Another important innovation that indicated their independence was their practice of equality as both men and women could preach at meetings and and could interpret the speaking in tongues and it was also not unusual for women to hold ceremonial roles as shepherdesses, as they they are called. So in summary, the sect was a self-created rural black peasant-led organization. It was perceived as wild and a rural threat because it was independent of European influence and was associated with African cultural retentions and was seen as beyond establishment control. The high point of prosecutions was in 1934 when 94 sect members, sect members were prosecuted. But as interest in carrying out prosecutions waned, meetings began to be held also in the capital. Eventually, with, uh, as more and more local people were involved in the co- local council, um, the, the the sect uh, the view of it became more benign, and so uh, after political control was won by local politicians, the ban on the church was eventually lifted in '64. Uh, so when the, which is when the ordinance ban in the practice was, was lifted, and the membership gradually started to increase during the '60s, and by '91 it had it, uh, by 2012 the spiritual Baptists held about nine to ten percent of total church membership for the whole country. Um, the interesting point about this is that is, it, it shows that relationship of how you know, the wild was seen, first of all, as totally beyond control, but over a period of time was gradually <coughs> incorporated by the so-called civilized, the civilized world uh, in terms of the island society. And uh, another important illustration of the shifting St. Vincent Frontier Uh, between the shift between the civilized and the wild, is of marijuana cultivation and use. Now by 2002, there were an estimated 1,500 marijuana farmers cultivating in excess of 3,000 acres in the northern St. Vincent Hills. The growers supplied a regional and local market, and these farmers basically are rugged individuals for whom insecurity is the hallmark of their gandra cultivation at every step of the cycle in which they're involved. So they are confronted with the prospect of thieves, eradication from coordinated military and police raids, ambush from rivals, and being cheated by buyers. And in these ways, they are, I would say, identifiable frontiersmen, most of them are men, frontiersmen in all but name. Over time, there has followed official attempts, of course, to tame or civilize these wild gandra growers. So many growers are squatters on government land, which was originally set aside to create a kind of ecologically a water table to inhibit soil erosion from the northern hills of the island their farming activities in uh, in the out of reach northern hills created a knock on effect of soil erosion, rapid runoff of water and lack of soil absorption and attempts at restriction by government the civilized authority by arresting uh, by arrest of users and growers you know was began was failing failed noticeably as Particularly, of course, the alternative banana crop was no longer available. And you can see a direct shift from bananas to ganja cultivation. But interestingly enough, by 2002, those kind of aggressive response to the to growing changed and the strategy became, instead of uh, uh, seeing these people as beyond the pale, that was de- they developed, I quote, an integrated forest management and rural livelihoods project started to be developed. Uh, so this was developed for farmers who no longer were referred to as illegal growers or squatters, but were now forest users. And they were given incentives for replanting of trees for forest cover. But, um, of course, within, in, with the increasing availability of Ganger in in the, in the capital... Uh, this, this is often supplied through the island's minivan network. The use of the herb in the capital is, is fairly widespread. And we are now at the moment in Caribbean kind of po- politics and, and economics as well, of course, is that we will soon discover the result of official government and regional investigations into the de- decriminalization of the weed. In the interim, because uh, there have been official. Uh, reports asked for by by the CARICOM about, about decriminalization. Now, in the, and it's true a couple of um, countries, like Jamaica in particular, have, you know, you're allowed to carry, I think, it's two ounces without being picked up by the police. Um, so, again, what you see is that the wild, the different strategies for taming the wild. But what I'm saying is that we are at a moment in the region, okay, when we will discover the direction, the implications of this. In the interim, we have a situation right now where suppliers and users exploit what I would call a blind eye space between official illegality and public use. So, for example, in St. Vincent, in Kingstown, on Friday evenings, uh, you have something for years now that are called bloco feds, which are catering to all comers, <clears throat> take place in the open square, um, in the central, capital central square so and if you if you attend any of these which i have done you know the the scent of marijuana for social use is so strong and hovers over the center um but at the same time on the square around the boundary of course the police are patrolling <laughs> so you have a an interesting situation where the town center frontier is created for a time as ganja moves into the center while civilized law and order patrol the periphery. But um, let me move on and give you a specific example of, um, because I said I wanted to talk about individuals, and for me, and in the book I explore a a number of individuals, and I'll give you a few examples. Um, Out of this frontier maelstrom has emerged at least one marijuana pioneer, a man by the name of Junior Spirit Cottle, who is a a tall whip of a man who is now in his mid-sixties. He dresses in jeans and sandals, he wears raster locks and he has a scraggly beard. He was at one time chairman of the island's Marijuana Growers Association, which of course was totally illegal. Um, And he famously led a march through Kingstown after there was a lot of the weeds being destroyed under American direction in in the St. Vincent Hills. So he now describes himself as retired. He's mostly self-educated. He became politically active in the 1970s during the St. Vincent Black Power movement. In 73, he was accused with two others of killing the island's attorney general and he was sentenced to be hanged. In 76, after a number of appeals, his case reached the British Privy Council. The conviction for murder was revoked due to irregularities in the 73 trial. So he was rearrested for another offence as soon as um, this happened uh, and he was given a jail sentence of 11 years. He used this period... to to re-educate himself and became extremely knowledgeable in the writings of Karl Marx. Uh, In 98, yeah, he led another march. (coughs) Um, As well as being a political activist and campaigner for legalizing marijuana, he has at various times in his life been a farmer grower of marijuana. He became a government agricultural department employee, uh, a liaison officer between marijuana growers and the official forest rangers who worked, who tried to improve the the environment in in the far... North of the island. Anyway, he now owns a plant shop in the in the cent, in the sorry in the corner of Kingstown, um, which doubles as a, a liquor bar and a ganja cafe. And it could be a Gandra, could be like in in Amsterdam, except it's in the Caribbean context. And I know this because I interviewed him in it. And this is what, how this sort of this bi- bi- biography came about. And in 2009, to my amazement, he pulled up this this document to show me. He was invited as a civil society representative to attend the first global forum on cannabis, opium, and poppy cultivation in Barcelona, followed up with an invitation to attend the next one in April 2015. So Cottle, I would argue this character, has become eventually a literal frontier, liminal character, who was swung between the illegality of the wild and officialdom. His life history is an example of a modern pioneer negotiating the shift between wild hinterland production an urban civilized acceptance of what presently remains an illegal but increasingly uncontrollable form of economic and social development in the St. Vincent hinterland and in the capital. But frontier character life need not be as dramatic as that of Junior Spirit Cottle. Let me, I want to conclude by giving you a few illustrations of some examples of other frontier people. Uh, What this person I want to describe is basically a dame school teacher her name was miss nelsia john so growing up in st vincent as i did i attended i attended her dame school and i don't know of any studies of these institutions so i rely here on my own experience to draw this picture for you in the 1950s dame schools in st vincent operated alongside church based schools and public government funded schools they were essentially home based institutions run by one or two women often a spinster on her own or perhaps with a sister the one i attended <coughs> She rented one of her rooms to a secondary school student from the countryside, but during the day, the rest of her house was converted into classrooms, including if there was enough demand in the outhouse area. So in my experience, 15 or 20 children of primary school age attended the school. She offered private elementary education, paying attention to reading, writing, especially cursive practice, you know, the loops touching the top and the bottom of of the lines. English grammar, arithmetic, arithmetic, and Bible study. Of course, rote learning and memorization were commonplace. Now, the Dame School represents a long-established female frontier activity that in many countries dated back to the 18th century. The school, in in my case, mimicked the larger state or church denomination schools. However, the Dame School offered the individual female teacher a means to make an, an independent living, an opportunity often restricted to women in frontier societies. On a small scale, the school replicated frontier violence with children regularly beaten for misdemeanors in their set lesson tasks. Under close supervision, at times the children would shake with fear, and I can vouch for this. Uh, of course, violence also applied in other schools. However, the greater intimacy of the Dame School and the easier oversight of its small group made for a more intense experience of violent frontier education. Another example is, a, is that of a surgeon. This character is by the name of Dr. Cecil Cyrus. The life work of one general surgeon who saved countless lives through his improvisational methods offers another example of modern front, the modern frontier life in St. Vincent. Born in 1927, he, when he retired from practice in 2001, his career spanned about 39 years. He became a legend among medical practitioners in the Caribbean and more widely. After he qualified in '57, he returned to work in St. Vincent. He fell out with the public medical services very quickly and established his own clinic and eventually his own small hospital. Uh, In 2002, of all things, he opened a museum of his life and work. I visited this museum in 2006, and he kept in one corner what he called his favorite implements, those with which he had to improvise in his surgical practice. They included screwdrivers of various sizes with metal instead of wooden handles, which were easier for sterilization, electric drills and homemade lead weights for traction, traction, the lead weight, uh, the the weights for traction uh, because the officially available sandbags leaked. And his favorite invention was three hollow metal objects, each roughly the size of a wine cork and each with a serrated outer edge. They were homemade trephines used as attachments to electric drills for boring into the brain to free blood trapped there from blows caused by rocks or from cutlass fights. Uh, the, these cutlass fights arose because be, in the time when people were having to cut bananas, you had to have a very sharp cutlass to make to cut the banana properly. And as, of course, the cutlasses were sharpened, they were also turned to, to local fights as people got drunk at night. And so he had to deal with, with severe um, head injuries. His observations on the cases that he had to encounter speaks directly to the Frontier experience, I would say. He noted, We are a long suffering people. Here, we survive often against all odds. These Frontier individuals that I described have in common a certain rawness in their lifestyle. Added to that, we can see some ambivalence and even distrust of authority, a capacity for innovation and self creation, and what I would call a genius for ready action. So, for finally, I want to just conclude to offer a vignette from another kind of Frontier person um, who spoke with me while I was writing up my notes sitting in a hotel bar one evening in Canawan Island. Her name is Mrs. Rock. She was a hotel cleaner who mopped the w- and wiped tables. And she approached me uh, in Caribbean, uh, for dialect. It went something like this. I won't do the raw one. I'll sort of make <laughs> it a little more gentle. You're writing a book? I thought so. You see, it's good to ask a question. You know that man from Barbados? It's say on the radio he come from Barbados. He's going to join with the owners of the hotel up there with the houses. I can't remember the man's name. Anyway, I want to talk to he. I have a piece of land. And I want to cut it up and keep the bottom piece and sell him the top half. He could make a hotel there. I have family he could employ. I can't remember the man's name. I wonder how I could talk to he. He had one of them house up north. I wrote, yes, I recall his name now. He named Trump. If you see him, tell him I have a piece of land for sale. My brother will live in the bottom piece and I will live there too when I retire. I am a rock, my name is Rock, and I am related to all them island families, thank you.